Do you know the wonderful thing about John's gospel? The, the wonderful thing about John's gospel is that perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, John's gospel reveals Jesus' glory to us. And it does it in this way that kind of just keeps coming back to you time and time again. He does it over and over again. I don't know if you found this, but if you've ever read John's gospel and then you've reread John's gospel, we, we often find that it challenges us over time and again and again as we come to it. It challenges us about who we think Jesus is. It challenges us in what we think faith is, what it really means to trust in Jesus. And sometimes people find this when they read it. Maybe you found this as you've read John's gospel. Sometimes when you read John's gospel, it's just this beautiful reminder. And you say, yes, Jesus is glorious. I want to continue in my faith in him. But sometimes John's gospel, it actually exposes us. And it shows us ways that we need to adjust how we think, how we feel about Jesus. What is our faith in Jesus actually like? We need to make changes. And then sometimes John's gospel just outright challenges us. It can show us that we have a faulty view of Jesus, that we have false faith in him. And so we need to take drastic action in our heart and in our mind to truly come to Jesus and truly believe in him. So we're going to pray again that God would do these things in us as we read John's gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we read your word now and as we reflect on this wonderful sign, this miracle of Jesus in John chapter 6, please help us to know what it points to about your Son. Show us his glory and help us to truly come to him in faith, the faith that you would have us uh, have in our Lord Jesus. And we pray for your strength for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue that series that we've been on in the last few weeks and we'll continue over the summer, uh, John's signs or Jesus' signs in John's gospel. So John, remember, if you think back to the last few weeks, John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Why does he do that? Well, it's because he, the signs point to something. They point beyond themselves to a greater reality about Jesus, something of his glory. So remember these words that John says, these should be burned in our minds by the end of the series. This is what John says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So for each of Jesus' signs, we have to ask, what does the sign point to? What is the glory of Jesus that's revealed here? How does it show us that he's the Messiah, the Son of God? And we need to know, we need to work out, what do we need to know about Jesus and believe in Jesus? How can we have that life in his name that it talks about? So think back to last week. We read about the healing of two people. Jesus healed the official son, the boy who was on death's door, and he healed the man who couldn't walk for 38 years. And what did the signs show us? They showed us Jesus has power over sickness and death. But it also showed us more than that. It showed us that Jesus has the ability to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus fixes a bigger problem than sickness. He fixes the problem of sin sickness. If you hear Jesus' word and if you believe, well then you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are healed. You receive eternal life in that moment. And so you live. Even though you die, you'll be raised on the last day. You will not come under the judgment of God. Praise God for that. You'll be raised with Jesus forever. But as we've been seeing these signs, we start to realize John actually starts to show us that there are 
uh, different ways of understanding Jesus. Even as Jesus did these signs, there were people who had false belief in Jesus. What is that false belief? Was when you believe in Jesus just for the signs, just for the miracles, but you miss the reality that the signs are pointing to. So you believe maybe to get something from Jesus or for him to meet your desires instead of meeting his desires, glorifying him. So what is true belief? Well, it's when you glorify him, when you want to believe him as he truly is in the scriptures, as he's revealed to us. It's when you see what the signs point to. It's when you believe his word, his teaching, and you take him at his word and you trust in him as he really is. Not as you imagine him to be, not as you want him to be, but as he really is right here, the Messiah, the Son of God. John wants us to believe, to truly come to Jesus and have that life, eternal life, spiritual life in his name. So this is what John continues to show us in Jesus' signs. Uh, today we come to the sign, uh, the very, very famous sign of feeding the 5,000. But let's not take that miracle because it's famous. Let's not take it for granted. Let's not misread the sign or let it wash over us. Let's see what it points to and what it shows us about Jesus. So if you pull up your Bible there and your outline as well, you'll see, we'll look at the first few verses. Uh, John sets the scene for us. Where is Jesus? What is he up to? Look at verses 1 to 3. Jesus is back in Galilee. And at this point, there are now huge crowds following him because he's healing the sick. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus and his healing power. But Jesus, he's actually trying to get away from the crowds. His priority is not healing people, though he did it, though he had compassion. That's not his priority. No, he's trying to get out of the spotlight. He doesn't want people following him simply because of the science. He doesn't want this kind of false, half-hearted belief in Jesus. And so he goes across the sea and up a mountain. He's really trying to get away. But this doesn't stop the crowds. Verse 5 shows us the crowds just keep following. They don't leave him alone. And so this leads to this weird conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. What does Jesus do with this crowd, this situation? Well, first, John tells us why he does what he does. Uh, he does this first miracle. Why? Look at verse 4 with me. It says, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, Jesus went on to have this conversation when he saw the crowd. See, the Jewish Passover festival has something to do with this sign. What happens at Passover? See, the Jews would, would celebrate this festival and they would eat a sacrificed lamb and they would eat unleavened or unyeasted or whatever the word is, bread. And so as the bread-eating festival is coming near, Jesus has a plan to reveal his glory with bread. So what's the confusing convo because of this? Uh, look at verse 5, halfway through. Jesus asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. See, Jesus already has a sneaky plan, and so he asks for something totally outlandish. Philip, he's one of Jesus' very first disciples. He's just beside himself. Look at verse 7. He's like, what do you mean, Jesus? 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to, for each of them to have a little. So there's about 5,000 men there, plus women and children. So maybe there's 10, 12,000 people there. We don't know. 
But Philip reckons 200 denarii or 200 days wages couldn't pay, couldn't pay for enough bread for everyone just to have a bite. I did a little calculation this week to buy 12,000 bread rolls from Woolies is $5,300. I think bread is probably a lot cheaper for us than it was for Jesus and people in those days. But either way, this is Jesus asking for thousands and thousands of dollars worth of bread to feed all these people. Not to mention, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They would have to go out back into the towns and find enough bread and then bring it back. This, would, this is just not a good event organizing uh, committee that's, that's, that's organized this event, is it? Because, well, there's no event organizing committee. So they're out in the middle of nowhere, no bread. And so another disciple, Andrew, uh, this is Peter's brother, he pipes up in verse 8 and he again thinks Jesus is just a bit crazy. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? There's no chance of this happening, Jesus. You've lost your mind, they think. But Jesus, calm and confident, says, have them sit down. And so this leads us to the miracle, to the sign. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 and be amazed at Jesus again. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, everyone there, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. I just can't grasp how that happened. Can you? Think about it. Somehow Jesus broke and handed out enough bread for 10, 12,000 people, and it didn't run out. I just wonder how that actually happened. Did he have like, you know, one bag or one basket and he just kept pulling out more and more bread from it and it just kept coming out? Or did he have one loaf of bread and he could, like, would break a bit off and it just wouldn't get smaller? Like, how did that happen? It's wild. Look at verse 12. It gets even better. Now, they were full. When they were full, everyone, these thousands of people, they've had more than enough. He told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 basketfuls with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over. So they started with five loaves. They end with 12 basketfuls. They finish with more than they started with. What is that? How is that possible? It's because Jesus is the king. It's because he's the Messiah. It's because he's the son of God, the only son of God who's come from the Father with his power and authority. This is again what this sign points to. Like the other signs, this shows us Jesus' immense power, his total authority over his creation. Without a word, maybe just with a thought or just with his touch, Jesus multiplies bread for a multitude. He feeds them all until they're full. Be amazed by Jesus. Please don't be unamazed by Jesus. Don't say, yep, I've heard this one. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Famous miracle. What's next? I remember a friend of mine telling me many years ago that he was in a Bible study group and one week a new member joined that group. And they were reading one of the Gospels together and they came to one of the miracles of Jesus. I don't remember which one it was. But as they read this miracle of Jesus and they talked about it, this woman, this new member, she was just awestruck. She was amazed. She was visually excited. She was verbally expressing her amazement that Jesus did this miracle, whatever it was. And everyone else in the group was, who were Christians for a long time were like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that is amazing. I guess we should be a bit excited about that. Shake yourself out of familiarity with Jesus. 
No one has the power and authority that he has. Are you gripped by that? Why would you listen to anyone else? Or or why would you believe in or entrust your life to anyone else? Why would you follow any other way or any other philosophy or any other figure or person or any other so-called God? Here's the one who turns water into wine. Here's the one who makes the sick well and raises the dead. Here's the one who feeds multitudes with just a little bit of bread and fish. Here's the one who offers you eternal life if you will come to him. It doesn't get better than Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. Believe in him. Get excited about him. Which is what the crowds do when they see this miracle. Uh, But they kind of get it wrong as well. You see, in the other Gospels, we don't really get to see the response of the crowds to this miracle of Jesus. But here in John, we do. John tells us how they responded. Look at verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. So these people are Jews. They know from their Old Testament Bible that God had promised to send them a great and final prophet, a capital P prophet, who would bring God's word and lead people into truth. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is that prophet that Moses talked about. So they've kind of got it right. Maybe they've understood the sign. Maybe they've seen what this points to. Jesus is the promised one. He would come to speak God's word and lead his people. But look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. You see, they wanted him to be who they wanted him to be. And they wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to be their worldly king. They wanted him to take the place of the Herod family or the Roman emperor. They wanted a king who could fill their bellies and give them good things. And they were going to take him and declare that, they were, that he was their new king and send him in war against their overlords, their enemies. But that's not who Jesus really is, is it? That's not what the sign pointed to. Yes, Jesus has power and authority. He is the king of kings, but that's not how he would use his power, his authority. They missed what the sign was pointing to. And it makes you ask the question, I think it should. Is Jesus, the Jesus you believe in, the real Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe the one the signs point to, or do you believe in the version of Jesus that you want to believe in? that you want him to be. Let Jesus tell you who he is right here. Don't make up a Jesus who may well affirm you instead of challenging you like the real Jesus does. Anyway, the real Jesus is better than any Jesus you could come up with. And that leads us to thinking about the meaning of this sign. What is the meaning? How does it point us to the glory of Jesus? How does it show us the real Jesus? Well, with some of the signs, we have to piece the puzzle together a little bit. And we have to work out what does the sign point to. But with this sign, Jesus actually spells it out for us. He actually goes on to tell us clear as day. Because later in chapter 6, Jesus, he's moved on to another place. We didn't read this before. Um, Jesus moves on. He's in another part of Galilee. And the crowds, they look for him again. And then they find him yet again. And then he has this conversation, this dialogue with them in the rest of chapter 6. 
So you can go, you can read it for yourself at home. I encourage you to do so. But in that convo, Jesus makes the meaning of his sign clear. They, the Jewish people of Galilee, they didn't get it. They wanted to politicize him. They wanted more bread from him. They wanted to fill their bellies. But what does the sign actually point to? Something far greater than these things. Have a look at the screen at verse 48. Jesus declares to them, I am the bread of life. You see what he's saying? He says, I've just fed you with bread. That staple food that sustains your life. But bread, the miracle of bread, it's not just about filling your bellies. No, the sign points to me. The sign of bread which gives you life points to me, Jesus says, who gives you true life, spiritual life, eternal life, and in abundance. See, look at verse 48 again, and look what he says after that. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, the Israelites, ate the manna, the bread that God sustained them with in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. See, Jesus makes this beautiful comparison here. In the days of Moses, when the fathers, the ancestors of Israel, wandered the desert, God gave them manna, free bread that fell from, from heaven, fell from the sky each day with the Jew, and they ate it and they lived. God sustained them. But they all eventually died, didn't they? That bread sustained their physical life for a time until their life's end. But Jesus says, something better than manna is here. There's a new bread from heaven. It's me. I'm the son of God who's, who've come from heaven to earth. And if you eat this bread, well, then you will live not just until your life's end. No, you will live forever. The sign, the miracle of bread, it points to Jesus the bread who gives eternal life, life in abundance. See, you eat bread each day, or many of us do, um, for physical sustenance. Jesus is the sustenance for eternal life. Have a look at verse 54 on the screen. Jesus puts it a bit more starkly. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus is saying something radical here. It's Jesus' body and it's Jesus' blood that give us eternal life. This is what the sign points to. This is the glory that, of Jesus that this points to. Jesus is the bread of life and this is what he means. He's saying this wonderful truth. He's saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life so that the world can live. I'm going to hand over my flesh to be crucified. I'm going to shed my blood. And I'm going to do it for you. So you can live. So you can have eternal life. This is Jesus' poetic way of saying, one day I'll die for sin. I'll take the punishment that, that you deserve for your sin upon myself. I'll, I'll bear the wrath of God against the evil that you have done. And I'm going to do it for you. This is my Father's plan. This is my purpose. He says, I'm the bread that gives you eternal life. If you eat me, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. My death will cover all your sin. Now, Jesus is being intentionally off-putting here because cannibalism is not something nice to talk about or think about. It's not something to joke about. 
He's trying to shock the Jewish people and shock us. So how, what does he actually mean by that? Like how do you eat the bread of Jesus? How do you eat his flesh and drink his blood? Now, you might be tempted to think that it's taking communion, that it's sharing the Lord's Supper here at church with the bread that represents his body and the wine which represents his blood, but it's not. It's much bigger than that. Please see this. Look at verse 35 on the screens. This is the response Jesus is after. This is what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus says, No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. See, what does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood? It's to come to Jesus and believe. It's coming to Jesus in faith. It's faith that Jesus wants. It's faith that saves. It's coming to Jesus and particularly trusting in his death on the cross. His flesh and blood poured out for you. Trusting that that is your forgiveness and your salvation. And is the food, the basis for your eternal life. It's his death that feeds us spiritually. It's his flesh and blood given up for us that satisfies us and gives us eternal life. It's his death that gives us life in abundance. Praise Jesus. Do you believe that? That's what the sign points to. That's why Jesus multiplied the bread. He's the real bread. His flesh and blood is the food. Trust in him and you will have life in his name. And it's worth asking that question, do I believe? Do I believe in that? Do I believe that about Jesus? Do I trust in him in the way that he says I need to here? Because remember, there were people who were following Jesus just because of the signs. And there were people who wanted him to be their national king. And there were people who wanted more bread for him. Maybe there's people in this room today who are here for some benefit of Jesus or benefit from his church, but not here for Jesus himself. See, these people of Galilee... They went with what Dave called last week the Galilean faulty belief plan. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be like those men and women that day. And you don't want to be like the countless thousands of people who through the centuries have misread Jesus and misunderstood him. So the question is, how do you, how do you know if you've understood him? How do you know if you've truly come to him? How do you know if you really believe in Jesus on his own terms? There's so much we could say about this. But I think the passage just gives us one thing. Because what Jesus says, true faith is, he says it's eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He says it's trusting in him, in his death. Do you trust in Jesus' death for your sin? If you do this, well, it means that you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to acknowledge that you're not good. You have to acknowledge that you're not whole, that your heart and your mind, that your life is corrupted by evil, that you don't meet God's righteous standards. Have you done that? So you can't truly believe, you can't truly have eternal life if you don't say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you acknowledged and confessed your whole life rebellion against God? Have you come to Jesus for forgiveness, full and free, and had your, your sins washed clean by his blood? Have you actually done that? 
And do you continue to do that? Do you continue trusting in the cross of Christ for eternal life? Do you know and remember, I'm an unworthy sinner, but Jesus is my great saviour? And do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice in what he's done for you? Are you just sold out because of how good he is? Are you gripped by him so that you know you have life in abundance with him? And are you persevering in him, feeding on him by faith in your heart and mind, walking with him day in, day out, year by year, week by week? Praise God if you are. Keep going. But if you aren't, what do you do? What if you discover, even today, even right now, that your faith in Jesus is lacking, that it's faulty? The answer lies in Jesus and responding to him now. Because however you've responded to Jesus in the past, what matters is seeing his sign now, seeing his glory now, coming to him in prayer now, confessing your sinful heart and mind and life to him and believing in him now and trusting in his death for your sin. If you do that, well, it will lead you to a life of giving him thanks and a life of joy and a life lived for him and lived with your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, who share the same bread of life. So what's your response to Jesus in John's gospel today? See, maybe for you, John has been, John, Jesus here in this chapter has been just a reminder to continue in what you're already doing. Keep trusting in Jesus, keep rejoicing in him, and you want to keep doing that. Praise God. Or maybe you've come to this passage today, and it, you know you need to make some adjustments. Maybe there's things you realize today about Jesus himself or about what it means to have faith in him that you need to adjust in your heart and mind so that you have a more genuine trust in Jesus. How will you make those adjustments? How will you set your heart and mind on the truths of Jesus in John 6? Maybe for you today, you realize you lack faith. Or your faith is, is rocky, it's shaky. It's not the faith that Jesus is calling for in these chapters. Maybe Jesus has shown you today you didn't have a real faith in him to this day. And so you need to make big changes in your heart and mind. Come and talk to me if that's you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to help you come before God and confess your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus. But for all of us, I pray that we all see this sign and what this sign points to about Jesus. That he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the bread of life. And I pray that we would feed on him, that we would believe in him, and by believing have life, eternal life in his name. Amen.